This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Since I will be, be speaking on the subject of, of natural law and, and law really in general, I thought it would be helpful to begin with a quotation from, uh, from uh, Benjamin Disraeli, the great um, 19th century uh, British parliamentarian uh, who said uh, of his, of his, uh, his colleague uh, Gladstone, my, my friend and colleague has said a great many things uh, today, both new and true. The problem is though, the things that he said that were true weren't new. And the things that he said that were new well, they were true. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope to say uh, some things uh, that are true tonight or today, but uh, I don't know if I'll be able to cover both new and true. I'll settle just for true. Uh, how about that? So my, my subject is uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, and legal, or Thomas Aquinas's natural law theory and legal positivism. So it is, it is well known that Thomas Aquinas is, if not the original, at least one of the most important defenders of the natural law tradition. That tradition, in spite of its medieval roots, is very much alive in contemporary jurisprudence and political thought. Probably the most obvious example of natural law's influence is in the thought and actions of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. As a Christian, Dr. King was well aware that's of St. Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 13, that Christians must respect the rightful political authorities, not merely for prudential or pragmatic reasons, but because those authorities, presumably whether they rule justly or unjustly, derive their authority from God. It was not a frivolous question, therefore, for his fellow pastors to ask Dr. King to provide a reason for his flagrant disobedience of the segregation laws in the American South. In response, Dr. King writes the following in his famous letter from Birmingham City Jail. One might ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer, continues Dr. King, lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. But what's the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. And to put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in the eternal or the natural law. End of quote. So what Dr. King highlights in Thomas's natural law theory is one of its most distinctive features. It's not just the claim that there exists a natural law or that legislators have a moral obligation to legislate according to it, or even that we're absolved from obedience to human laws that contradict the natural law. It is rather the claim that laws that are out of accord with the natural law 
are not actually laws, that they, in fact, lose their legal status altogether. And so it's, it's a, a misreading, I think, of Thomas to interpret this claim as merely linguistic or as a means of speaking hyperbolically. In other words, Thomas is not simply saying that unjust laws are not worthy of the name, uh, as you might accuse someone who burns the flag as not worthy of the name American, even though everybody knows that they're every bit as American as the rest of us. Nearly every time that Aquinas reiterates this principle, he's quoting Augustine, who spoke not of natural law, but rather of that which Thomas later says the natural law is a part, namely the eternal law. As it turns out, the eternal law is nothing other than divine providence itself, inclining all the things of creation towards their proper end and in accordance with the particular natures that they have. As Thomas will say, therefore, the natural law is nothing other than the eternal law as it applies to human beings. Precisely because the natural law governs all human affairs, positive or human laws must be made accordingly. In fact, one might say that positive laws must be seen within the context of a legal order that far transcends the political community. Hence, Thomas Aquinas can defend his paradoxical notion of illegal laws as one might explain the invalidity of a human statute that directly violates some higher statute in the same legal order. Or, or for example, let us suppose that a traffic officer decides that the legal speed limit in a certain area is just too high and that he prefers that the speed limit be 20 miles per, miles per hour less than what it actually is. So acting upon this, he just begins stop motor, stop, uh, stopping motorists and writing them tickets for exceeding, not, uh, for exceeding his own speed limit, but who do not necessarily exceed the speed limit posted. But one might say that the new traffic law imposed by the officer has no legal status because the standard he imposes is out of accord with the higher law that he had no authority to change. The speed limit he imposes is not a law, therefore, but simply an imposition of his will on the motorists. Thomas Aquinas says something quite similar, even stronger, when it comes to human laws out of accordance with the natural law. Rather than laws, such measures are mere acts of violence. It's not surprising that when Thomas appeals to the principle that unjust laws are no laws at all, he relies on the authority of Augustine rather than that of Aristotle. It's very difficult to imagine the philosopher, as Thomas Aquinas calls Aristotle, uh, suggesting anything so radical. This isn't because Aristotle was a legal positivist, far from it. Aristotle makes it very clear in Book 5 of the, Nic of the Nicomachean Ethics that some things are just only by law, whereas other things are just by nature. Nevertheless, Aristotle never uses the expression natural law at all, something to which Thomas seems to have been sensitive, even if he doesn't call direct attention to it. It appears, therefore, that the assertion that unjust laws are no laws at all rests upon the idea that the political order is ultimately part of or subordinate to a higher order of a distinctively legal character. Hence, Thomas's ability to suggest that human laws which contravene that higher order 
are more than simply bad or unjust. They are rather illegitimate. In one of the most important parts of Thomas's treatise on law in his Summa Theologiae, he makes the parallel claim that all legitimate human laws are derived from the natural law. Here we get the distinct impression that the human legal order is more than simply dependent upon the divinely established natural order, but that the human order, including positive law, is actually part of that higher order. To be sure, not all human laws are derived from the natural law in the same way. Some, he says, are direct conclusions from the natural law, which would include human prohibitions against those things which must be prohibited everywhere, such as murder, assault, theft, and the general principle that crime should be punished. Others are determinations of the natural law, that is, human statutes which could conceivably have been decided one way or the other, such as which side of the road motorists will have to travel on, and which specific punishments will be imposed for specific crimes. Thomas's own analogy, taken from architecture, perhaps provides the best explanation of this very intriguing principle. Some features included by an architect must be in place before they belong to the general form of a house. So for example, no house can be without a foundation, a roof, walls, some way to get in and out. Once these are in place, however, a seemingly limitless number of decisions can be made or must be made as to the particular characteristics, whether the house will have one kind of foundation or another, whether its roof will be tile or metal, whether the ceilings will be eight feet or 10 feet. Of course, some determinations of the natural law begin to approach the realm of conclusions the more broadly one considers them. For example, it would certainly be, uh, begin to contravene the general form of a house to make the foundation of a house out of porous or brittle material, or to make the ceiling only three feet high, or to omit putting in windows. Thus, when Thomas says that the punishments for crimes and are, are determinations of the natural law, we need not conclude that he's just saying just any punishment will do. Presumably to punish petty theft with the death penalty would contravene one of the very purposes for the institution of punishment, namely the, to render the, their criminal, the criminals their just deserts. What's important for our purposes is to remember that for Thomas, Conclusions from the natural law are no more derived from the natural law than are determinations. Once the law is established, and assuming it doesn't violate the natural law, it is no less unjust to break a law that could have been decided otherwise than to break one that could not have been decided otherwise. Put more strongly, to violate human law is to violate the natural law from which it is derived. Now, that positive laws are based upon a higher law and depend upon that higher law for their legal character is, of course, precisely what the, what the doctrine of legal positivism denies. Although the thesis has been stated and restated many times, its most articulate representative, contemporary representative, continues to be the great 20th century legal philosopher H.L.A. Hart. 
In his famous essay, Positivism and the Separation of Law and Morals, Hart attacks precisely the proposition that immoral or unjust laws are not really laws. To be sure, Hart elsewhere states that the version of, sorry, Hart nowhere states the version of legal positivism that might makes right. You see in the character of Thrasymachus in Plato's Republic or Thomas Hobbes, or that there simply is no such thing as justice above or beyond the, the positive law. The claim is much more limited, namely that immoral laws or unjust laws, in spite of being poorly designed, harmful, inequitable, or whatever else makes them bad laws, are still laws nonetheless, and still entail a legal obligation to obedience, just as the same, just the same as good laws do. Hence, when Hart says that law and morality should be kept separate, he doesn't mean that laws should not reflect moral principles, or even that legislators don't have a moral obligation to legislate in accordance with morality, however morality be conceived. Instead, he's arguing that the question of what the positive law is must not be confused with the question of what it ought to be. In short, Hart denies the Thomistic and Augustinian principle that an unjust law is no law at all. Hart advances several arguments to support his position, not all of which I'll consider here. As he concedes, the point at which law and morality must, are, are most easily but wrongly conflated occurs in the process of interpreting laws. Hart entertains an objection against, uh, according to which, uh, an objection against his own position, according to which laws very often require interpretation that necessitates a reliance upon some moral standard, some standard of reasonability that is not embedded in the law itself. For example, consider the law prohibiting the use of vehicles in a public park. The purpose of such a law seems clear to provide for a safer environment for those using the park. What must be done, however, is to define the word vehicle. Obviously, it refers to automobiles, but what about bicycles, unicycles, or roller skates? Aren't even wheelchairs a kind of vehicle? As the objection to Hart's position might go, all laws that require interpretation also require an appeal to some ought some ought. As a judge interprets the law just mentioned, he or she cannot reasonably address what the law actually means without simultaneously addressing what it ought to mean. Is it not the case, therefore, that when it comes to the interpretation of the law, the is and the ought are inextricably linked? So this is the objection that Hart now sets out to respond to and refute. As he says, although the question of what the law actually says must often be answered with reference to what it ought to say, this simple fact is far from demonstrating an inseparable connection, as some natural lawyers would argue, between the law and morality. So as Hart puts it, the word ought merely reflects the presence of some standard of criticism. One of these standards is a moral standard, but not all standards are moral. We say to our neighbor, you ought not to lie, and that might be considered a moral judgment. 
But we also remember the baffled poisoner might say, I ought to have given her a second dose. The point here is that intelligent decisions are not necessarily identical with decisions defensible on moral grounds. So we might well apply this line of reasoning to immoral laws that natural lawyers might be tempted to deprive of legal status. So for example, the segregation, uh, the segregation or Jim Crow laws of the American South indicted by Martin Luther King Jr. might be said to violate basic principles of justice and human dignity. But it would be a mistake, Hart would argue, to interpret the meaning of these laws as something less morally offensive simply because of a presumed connection between law and morality. The law simply says what it says. It might be just, it might be unjust, but it only confuses matters to assert that an unjust law must be interpreted to mean something that is more morally palatable or to carry on the charade that the unjust law is not really a law. According to Hart, we should simply call it what it is, an unjust law. One may disobey such law for conscientious reasons, but for the conscientious objector to argue that he or she is actually more law-abiding for disobeying the unjust law, more obedient to the spirit of the law, we might say, is just empty rhetoric. So Hart provides uh, another example, which helps us understand the, his position even better. <clears throat> if any laws could be accused of such moral depravity uh, that they lose their legal status, it would be the laws of Nazi Germany, right? As one case unfolded, a woman living under the Third Reich was intent upon disposing of her husband from whom she had gone astray. So in order to end her marriage, she denounced him to the Nazi authorities for having been openly critical of the regime, even Hitler himself. So the husband was promptly arrested and sentenced to death, though his sentence was later revoked in favor of sending him to the, to the battlefield where he later died. So although the husband's actions were technically in violation of the Nazi statute, a post-Nazi German court tried this, the, the, the wife five years later for having violated a pre-existing German law forbidding anyone from legally depriving a person of his freedom. So the woman's case was very straightforward. She broke no law because her husband did in fact commit the crimes of which she accused him. Nevertheless, the German court found her guilty on the grounds that the Nazi law was so morally repugnant that it provided no legal justification for her actions. As the court stated it, the law under which her husband was prosecuted, quote, was contrary to the sound conscience and sense of justice of all decent human beings. So while recognizing the difficulty of the situation, Hart actually criticizes the German court for its ruling. The fact that the Nazi statute violated basic norms of morality is not enough to say that such a law was not really a law. This doesn't mean that the woman should have been simply released. Hart actually argues that she deserved her punishment. But to say that her actions were illegal cannot be maintained without the charade of appealing to a 19th century statute that had little or no applicability to her situation, right? I mean, if anybody deprived her husband of freedom, it was the Nazis themselves. As bad as it may seem, 
Hart argues that if the court had insisted upon bringing this woman to justice, it should have at least had the candor to say what it was really doing, namely punishing her retroactively for breaking a law that did not exist at the time that she denounced her husband. As Hart argues, this quote, would have made plain that in punishing the woman, a choice had been made between two evils, that of leaving her unpunished and of sacrificing a very precious principle of morality endorsed by most legal systems. He continues, the vice of using the principle that at certain limiting points, what is utterly immoral cannot be law or lawful is that it will serve to cloak the true nature of the problems with which we are faced and will encourage the romantic optimism that all values we cherish ultimately will fit into a single system. That no one of them has to be sacrificed or compromised to accommodate another. So for Hart, the danger of the, the legal gymnastics, the legal reasoning of the German court is clear. Whereas the German court was able to manipulate the law in this case to make the situation come out in a morally acceptable fashion, the permissibility of interpreting the law to suit one's moral preferences has just as much of a potential to infuse immorality into the legal system as preserving it from immorality. What's more, the rule of law itself is threatened since judges are given license to rewrite the law according to what, in their minds, it ought to mean, instead of what it actually means. The conflation of law and morality may serve us well when laws are bad, but it will become disastrous when otherwise good laws become vulnerable to the arbitrary or even pernicious intentions of judges. In light of the fact that Hart's argument was originally made in the form of a lecture at Harvard Law School in 1957, one might observe that his concerns are somewhat prophetic. By this, I mean that it's difficult to find a better example of the romantic optimism against which he warns than what would follow in the next half century of American constitutional law. The clearest example of this is seen in Justice William Brennan's approach to interpreting the American Constitution. For those unfamiliar with Brennan's decisions, it's not unreasonable to surmise that he has been the most influential member of the US Supreme Court in the last 50 or 60 years. He's one of the primary advocates of what is today called the living constitution, by which is meant much more than the claim that the principles adopted 220 years ago, such as the freedom of speech and other uh, parts of the Bill of Rights, must be applied to changing contemporary circumstances, such as new mediums of speech like television, radio, or the internet. No, by the living constitution, Brennan allows that the principles themselves established in the original drafting of the constitution may actually come to mean something different in a later time than they meant to the ones who wrote the law in its original form. Nowhere is the novelty of Brennan's approach more apparent than in his understanding of the Eighth Amendment of the, of the US Bill of Rights, including the famous clause forbidding, the cruel and, the forbidding cruel and unusual punishment. As anyone familiar with the framing of the Constitution will acknowledge, cruel and unusual punishment was a phrase understood to mean torture. In particular, such things as boiling criminals in oil, or the insertion of thumbscrews or dismemberment 
such things. No one would have ever suggested that cruel and unusual punishment would have simply included the death penalty. Even the slightest amount of historical digging would confirm this. But perhaps the most convincing uh, evidence comes from, the, from other sections of the Constitution itself. For instance, the Fifth Amendment, ratified at the same time as the Eighth, states that no person shall be held to answer for a capital crime unless on presentment of an indictment of a grand jury. Needless to say, it's highly doubtful that the framers would indicate provisions for dealing appropriately with capital cases in one amendment and forbid those cases in another. At any rate, Brennan's method of interpretation allows him a way around the inconvenient historical facts by suggesting that the meaning of the Eighth Amendment has actually changed from its original meaning. As Brennan puts it, quote, the cruel and unusual punishments clause must draw its meaning not from what the authors of the clause understood it to mean, but from the evidence, but sorry, but from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. Brennan goes on to emphasize his point by suggesting something that the framers of the Constitution would never have dreamed, namely that the death penalty is morally comparable to the very murders for which they are inflicted that he's all but abandoned the original intention of the framers as an interpretive signpost is evident in his citation of Albert Camus, who claimed that capital punishment is, quote, obviously no less shocking than the crime itself, and that the new official murder simply adds a second defilement to the first. This is a roundabout way of bringing us back to the subject of natural law. Clearly, Justice Brennan is committed to some version of natural law doctrine. Even the most authoritative legal document in the land must bend to the principles discovered by an evolving and maturing society. To be sure, Brennan has in mind not just any maturation, but a moral maturation that allows us to transcend the legal dictums of the past and interpret them as they conform to a higher and more authoritative standard. If Brennan does not take the next step in calling this higher standard the natural law, I will. But what would Thomas Aquinas say? As already stated, Aquinas holds certain positions that H.L.A. Hart openly repudiates. The most important of which is that positive laws out of accord with the natural law are not laws at all. There, there are no laws at all. But would Aquinas allow for the interpretive gymnastics that a Justice Brennan would later come to typify? So fortunately, this question is taken up in some, some detail by the contemporary scholar and natural law philosopher, Aquinas scholar, uh, Russell Hittinger. In his book, The First Grace, Hittinger points out that Aquinas asks questions that, in spite of sounding extremely strange to modern legal philosophers, are actually quite pertinent in addressing the very issues they face. Aquinas is very interested in the question, for example, of what the law primarily exists in. What does the law exist in? <laughs> a contemporary legal philosopher never asks that question. It's a very strange sounding question, a very medieval sounding question. So responding to an objection, which argues that the law may be fundamentally irrational based upon St. Paul's admission that 
uh, he noticed another law in his members. Aquinas makes the following remark, and I believe that's the third uh, quotation on the handout. Since law is a kind of rule and measure, <clears throat> it may be in something in two ways. First, in that which rules, sorry, in that which rules and measures, or which measures and rules. Secondly, as that in, in which is measured and is ruled. In this way, law is in all those things that are inclined to something by reason of some law, so that any inclination arising from a law may be called a law, not essentially, but by participation. End of quote. So Aquinas is, actually, is clear. Law is something pertaining to reason and therefore exists primarily in the intellect of the lawgiver. This is perhaps most um, uh, clear when it comes to um, natural law. It's, it's most clear in natural law, which is, a, a, again, after all, nothing more than the human participation in the eternal law. How else could the eternal law be eternal if not for the fact that it exists in the mind of an eternal being who happens, in this case, to be the lawgiver, namely God? Again, the eternal law is not eternal by virtue of its existence in what is ruled and measured, but in that which rules and measures. The same is true for positive law. Although these kinds of laws may be internalized by subjects who come to obey them habitually, not just from the fear of punishment, but through virtuous habits and an understanding of the law's reasonableness, the law first and foremost exists in the intellect of the human legislator. Inasmuch as a, as a judge is charged with determining what the positive law actually means, therefore, his first recourse would seem to be not his understanding of the natural law, but of the mind of the legislator. Dare I even say it, of the legislator's original intent. As Aquinas' discussion unfolds, the existence of a natural law with a divine lawgiver in no way diminishes the importance or even necessity of human legislators. Nor does the argument that human affairs are better left to judges because of their ability to see the particularity of the situation. Granted, if a society could ever count on a fresh supply of wise and virtuous judges, the situation would be definitely be different. Aquinas prefers, however, to follow the advice of the ever practically minded Aristotle. This is the last quote, I believe, on, on, your, on your handout. Oh, is it the third? Okay, thank you. As the philosopher says, it is better that all things be regulated by law than left to be decided by judges, and this for three reasons. First, because it's easier to find a few wise men competent to frame right laws than to find the many who would be necessary, who would, who would be necessary to judge a right in each single case. Secondly, because those who make laws consider long beforehand what laws to make, whereas judgment on each single case has to be pronounced as soon as it arises, it is easier for, uh, for a man to see what is, what is right by taking many instances into consideration than by considering one solitary fact. And thirdly, because lawgivers judge in the abstract and in future events, whereas those who sit in judgment 
judge of things present, towards which they are affected by love, hatred, or some kind of cupidity, wherefore their judgment is perverted. End of quote. So Aquinas' preference for the rule of law over the rule of judges, or as Aristotle had put it, of inanimate justice over animate justice, provides the groundwork for the proper role of the judge, him or herself. It is indeed surprising the extent to which Aquinas considers the judge beholden to the positive law. Even though the judge ought to be aware of the natural law, his or her judgments rarely appeal to that higher standard. As opposed to, the, to a legislator who would presumably direct uh, their constant attention to the natural law from which all positive laws are derived, the judge stands one more step removed. Again, as, as um, Russell Hittinger points out, the judge's removal from the natural law is actually made apparent by examining three very uh, different but also very related cases. First, take the difficult case of the judge who knows that the accused is the victim of false testimony. Aquinas explains as follows. And this might be the, the, the last quote on the, on the handout. If the judge knows that a man who has been convicted by false witness is innocent, he must, like Daniel, examine the witness with great care so as to find a motive for acquitting the innocent. But if he cannot do this, he should remit him for judgment to a higher tribunal. If, if, if even this is impossible, he does not sin if he pronounces if, if he pronounces sentence in accordance with the evidence. For, for it is not he that puts the innocent man to death, but they that stated him to be guilty. He that carries out the sentence of the judge who has condemned an innocent man, if the sentence contains an inexcusable error, he should not obey, else there would be an, an excuse for the executions of the martyrs. If, however, it contain no manifest injustice, he does not sin by carrying out the sentence because he has no right to because he has no right to discuss the judgment of his superior nor is it he who slays the innocent man but the judge whose minister he is so alarming as it may seem aquinas's discussion of this of this scenario illustrates the weighty authority of the positive law because the law which is accused because the law which the accused is charged with breaking is itself just. Granted, if the law were purely arbitrary, let's say uh, some sort of superstitious law that required all those born on Friday the 13th to be killed, the judge would be required to withhold judgment. However, the flaw in this, in, in, in this case is not with the law, but with the circumstances of the trial. Once the judge has exhausted all possible means of exposing the fraudulent testimony, as the Bible tells us Daniel was successfully able to do in covering up the plot against, in, in, in uh, uncovering the plot against Susanna, he must honor the law by sentencing the man to death, even though he knows he's innocent. Even in cases where the positive law manifestly fails to reach the right outcome, therefore, it may not be just cast aside by an appeal to natural justice. 
But what about the case in which following the positive law would have disastrous results? Not simply for one person, but for the community as a whole. Aquinas examines this possibility in his discussion of judgments that occur, as he says, outside the letter of the law. The examples are familiar. First, a law which requires the city gates to be closed clearly falls short in the emergency situation where a group of citizens are being pursued by an enemy. Secondly, a law that requires deposits to be returned upon request is likewise lacking when a madman demands the return of his weapons with the intention of harming someone. As Aquinas argues that a judge, as Aquinas argues that a judge may act outside the letter of the law, it appears that he allows for positive law to be set aside for the sake of honoring the natural law. This, however, is not the case. This is not what we find him arguing. The judicial uh, virtue in question is what Aristotle called epikeia, which, uh, by which judges, and indeed even private citizens, act outside the written positive law. But does doing so indicate a preference for natural law or natural justice over the positive law? According to Aquinas, the answer is no. As Hittinger explains again, the judge is not exercising a presumed authority to invalidate the positive law in favor of the natural law. The laws in question are not unjust. They are, as all laws must be on some level, general. It is an unavoidable fact, however, that the more generally a law is stated and the more instances it's able to cover, the more likely it may fail in certain given instances. For this reason, Aquinas makes it clear that by exercising the virtue of epikeia, the judge does not render a judgment contrary to the law, but simply outside the letter of the law. In so doing, moreover, the judge in no way implies that the law was not well made. Generality, it appears, belongs to the very nature of positive law and cannot be avoided. In rendering judgment outside the letter of the law, the judge's guiding principle is not the natural law, but the intention of the lawgiver, who relies on the judge not to correct his mistakes, but simply to apply his intended purpose to concrete situations. As Aquinas states plainly, quote, he transgresses the law who by adhering to the letter of the law strives to defeat the intention of the lawgiver. The last case I'll consider is admittedly the most complex. What about situations in which judges are confronted with, with laws themselves that are manifestly unjust? As Aquinas explains, this might happen in two ways. First, by running counter to the human good, Secondly, by contradicting the divine good. Any law, therefore, which commands one to commit murder or adultery or forbids one from receiving the sacraments would fall into this category. Concerning those laws that contradict the divine good, such as law, the laws of pagans requiring adult, idolatry, Aquinas states bluntly that they should just never be obeyed. Of those laws which contradict the human good, though, 
Aquinas says that they might fall into any of three categories. First, they might be unjust with respect to their end. That is because they are issued for the sake of someone's private interest rather than for the common good. Secondly, they might be unjust with respect to their author, as when the law is issued by someone without proper authority. And lastly, the law may go wrong in respect of its form, as when, Aquinas explains, burdens are imposed unequally to the community, although with a view to the common good. Now, although these three examples of unjust laws are all subject to Augustine's uh, claim that, or his, his phrase that an unjust law is no law at all, Aquinas makes it clear that private citizens often ought to comply with the so-called law, quote, in order to avoid a scandal or a disturbance. So even though one might live in a country that imposes confiscatory taxation upon the poor, for example, it might be better to comply with the statute, even though it really amounts to nothing more than an act of violence. But what about the responsibilities of the judge? One might expect Aquinas to give the judge just license to correct the wicked law or to command one to violate it, depending on the situation. But this is not, however, what we find Aquinas saying. When confronted with laws constituting travesties of justice, Aquinas simply states that the judge must not render judgment. And this for a simple reason. Judges are beholden to the positive law. And since such acts of violence have no legal status, properly speaking, the judge cannot render judgment according to them. It is for this same exact reason, however, that the judge is powerless to change the law or to interpret the law in some way other than intended by the lawgiver. Precisely because he is the servant of the positive law, his responsibilities presuppose a prior act of legislation, of human legislation. Of course, if the judge is able to appeal to some higher standard of law, such as a constitution, that the law before him contradicts, he could just strike down the lower statute. But he does not do this through an appeal to natural law or to natural justice, but simply through an appeal to the higher positive law. One might even say that for the judge to assume the role of the legislator would always result in laws that fall short of natural justice themselves by reason of improper authority. So again, as, as Hittinger puts it, the precepts of justice that forbid usurpation are themselves precepts of natural justice. And for this reason, judicial preference for natural law over positive law is on Aquinas' own principles, a contradiction in terms. Contradiction in terms. Okay, so just to conclude, if we look back to H.L.A. Hart's concern with natural law theory, which includes the assertion that unjust laws are not actually laws, we can see, I would argue, that his chief concerns are both foreseen and addressed by Aquinas. That positive laws are derived from the natural law in no way permits judges to interpret those laws outside the intention of the lawgiver. 
When the laws are manifestly unjust, the judge must simply refrain from judgment. Nowhere to be seen is the freewheeling license assumed by Justice Brennan to change the very meaning of the law to conform to the new moral insights of a maturing society. In a broader sense, we might say that Hart's concern that natural law theory might weaken the authority of the positive law by constantly subjecting that authority to a higher tribunal is equally anticipated by Aquinas. That positive laws are, are, de are derived from the natural law is, in Aquinas's mind, precisely what provides the ground of moral obligation. In reading Hart's insistent that morality and law must be separated, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that he also must distinguish between moral obligations and legal obligations by saying that the two have nothing to, just nothing to do with one another. Whereas he admits that one may sometimes have a moral obligation to disobey the law, the legal validity of the disobeyed law means that one retains a legal obligation to obey what one has a moral obligation to not to obey. For Aquinas, the problem is just isn't this complicated. Since all valid positive laws are derived from the natural law, disrespecting the positive law is tantamount to disrespecting the natural law. Far from setting up a competing authority, the natural law provides a basis for legitimacy, for obeying the positive law that is ultimately based upon the actions of a divine lawgiver. It was presumably for this reason that St. Paul bid the Romans and the Christians in Rome, living under one of the most wicked regimes in history, to obey their legal authorities. Although Aquinas explains the exceptions to this rule, his analysis of the moral basis of the positive law only serves to strengthen its legitimacy. Thank you very much, Sheldon. That's the end.